my friends and everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible written thousands of years ago, and yet it's supposed to mean something to us today. I'm your host, Jonathan the Dumb Christian, and I can microwave a two-day-old cup of Folgers coffee and be unable to tell the difference between it and a fresh cup from Starbucks. We are going to continue in our journey through the book of John, and today we're going to be spending a little bit more time on the baptism of Jesus. Yes, the Bible's about to get real. We might get a little colorful, so buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. We're going to finish the second half of John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, going all the way through the rest of the chapter, verse 51. But uh, please, go read it. God said it the way he wants to say it. He'll always say it better than I can say it. I'm just a dumb Christian trying to wrap my head around this book called the Bible. And in the second half of John chapter 1, the author, John, writes about a guy named John the Baptist a different guy, whose mission it is to go into the public and start to tell people, get people excited, and prepare people's hearts and minds to be encountered by the Messiah, the one God promised to send to fix everything, save the world, redeem creation, to be the savior of Israel and all of mankind. This is John the Baptist's job. And so what he's doing is he's calling people to repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. He's that bullhorn guy on the the corner shouting with a big sign, come get baptized. The end is near. Uh, And he is baptizing people. Now, this is giving us a picture to help us understand right off the bat And John is setting the stage to help us understand that baptism, water baptism, is part of the process that orients a person's heart, mind, and spirit to be ready for Jesus. It's part of that process of of being rightly oriented towards Jesus. Uh, We're not really going to get into baptism Uh, very much right here in this section. We're going to look at a few things that this passage tells us about baptism that shows us what's going on and that Jesus is trying to teach us. But ultimately, um, the, if we're looking for more of like a theological treaty, we'll have to wait till we get to acts. And I'm not really going to try and break down anything theologically. I'm just going to try and understand what's going on on the, on the pages of scripture themselves. And so we're just going to take a look at a few things about surrounding baptism uh, here in this section, because that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's baptizing people as part of the process of setting the stage for right understanding and relationship with Jesus. While he's baptizing, there's this crowd and some this, uh, this silhouette begins to ascend over the crest of the hill as the sun's rising in the background and something inside John's spirit stirs and he says, <gasps> Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, perhaps if you've grown up in the Christian church, we have lots of type of Christianese language that talks about what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But in the Jewish mind, to the Jewish community surrounding John the Baptist, listening to what John is explaining to them, the kingdom of God is at hand, here comes the Messiah, the Lamb of God, 
the Jewish mind would be triggered to understand a few things. First, a lamb that takes away sin is a sacrifice offered to God as a result of sin in someone's life. Now, we've talked about this before on Dumb Christian. The the way we're going to look at sin, here on Dumb Christian at least, is that sin is whenever the good I choose for myself is different than the, God, than the good that God would choose for me. And what happens when we come up to the things that God says, these are this is what's good for you, and we say, yeah, screw that. I don't want to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. Screw you guys. I'm going home. I'm going to choose for myself. I think I can take care of myself just fine. Thank you. The instant we choose for ourselves a good for us that's different than the good God would choose for us, it separates us from God. And we'll get into this more actually next week in Genesis chapter 3. So we're seeing some correlation between John and Genesis. So uh, keep an eye out on Monday as we get into that first sin. And that sin separates us from God, separates us from the creator, the sustainer of all things. And so ultimately the consequence, the end result of that separation is de- being deprived from the light, the source of life. So Death is the consequence in the end. Death of the spirit, death emotionally, death of relationships, death physically. And so sin actually is a dividing barrier that keeps us from ever being able to go back to God. Well, at some point, there were some people that decided, you know what? This didn't turn out the way that I was hoping. This wasn't for my greatest good. I really screwed the pooch on this one. Damn it. All I did was make things worse. I wish there was a way I could go back to letting God show me what is for my greatest good. But then this sin that separates us actually also acts as a barrier, keeps us from going back. And so God says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll actually create a way so that we can remove that barrier. We can remove that sin and it is a sacrifice. So what you'll have to do is you'll have to get a pure, perfect lamb, shed its blood through violence, but draining the blood, right? It's not like it's just going to magically... You know, like, oh, where do cheeseburgers come from? Well, you got to raise old Bessie the milking cow and then take her to the slaughterhouse, and that's how you get a cheeseburger. So the, the sacrifice of the lamb is a violent act, this thing that's done violently to something pure, so that the lamb itself takes upon it the consequence of that separation, that death, and removes the barrier so that we can once again be kind of come back into the presence and and say, okay, I choose your good for me, God, instead of my own good for myself. But what they quickly found and discovered was that this sacrifice isn't just a one and done thing because there's, for some reason, there's something inside of us, this natural tendency to want to go back to sin, to keep choosing for ourselves. And then we keep finding ourselves back in the bullshit and we're like, well, damn it, I'm back here once again. And so they would find that they're making sacrifices every year, maybe every month, maybe every week, maybe every day. 
just to try and remove this thing that has become an obstacle to closeness, to intimacy, to right relationship with God. So this is the idea of a lamb that takes away sin. But John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All sin for everyone, everywhere, past, present, and future. This is God's lamb, not just the one that you picked up out of the field. This isn't Albert's lamb from the, uh, you know, the discount lamb shop. This is the lamb of God that takes away all all sin. And so in the Jewish mind, they're not simply drawn to think about a sacrificial lamb, but they're most likely triggered in their head, in their memories, a story about a man named Abraham when God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Again, we're not going to get into this story. It's actually in Genesis, and so it won't take us too long in Genesis to get there. So be looking for that in our, our time on Mondays as we go through Genesis. But in this encounter with Abraham and Isaac, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. They're on their way. Spoiler alert, God doesn't have him sacrifice his son. So if if you're worried about that, I'll at least give you that spoiler. He doesn't actually kill his son. But while they're on the way, while Abraham is being obedient to God, thinking that's what he's going to do, he has the flint knife, he has the fire, he has uh, the wood, he has all the stuff that he needs to make a sacrifice except for a lamb. And Isaac looks up at dad and says, I see we've got all the tools and the equipment for a sacrifice, but we don't have a sacrifice itself. And Abraham says, that's because God will provide for himself a sacrificial lamb. Is that right? Let me look real quick. Yeah. And so this phrase, the lamb of God, the sacrifice that God himself provides is something well beyond any kind of lamb or sacrifice that we can find or create on our own. But it is the sacrifice that God himself provides and not just to take away sin for a day, week, month or a year, but for all time, for all mankind. And John looks up and he points at Jesus and he says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world. So Jesus makes his way down through the crowd, the people who are around John getting baptized so that he himself can be baptized. Now, we don't really read much about any type of baptism in the Old Testament. However, that type of behavior, baptism, as a a mode of cleansing oneself is actually a very common practice. It's within the Jewish tradition, but it's not called baptism. It's called a mikvah, which is actually the the container of water that someone would go into to cleanse themselves, to have spiritual cleansing in the form of a baptism. Now, the baptism isn't the removal of sins. The understanding is the sacrifice removes the sin, the consequence of sin, and the barrier of sin. But the mikvah, or the baptism, is actually a spiritual action that takes place and it removes the stain, the spiritual or the metaphorical stain on a person's soul 
that has tainted them. And and so even though the sin barrier has re- been removed as a from the sacrifice, there's still something that attaches itself. Maybe it's um, bad emotions, bad memories, hurt feelings. Maybe it's addictions. Maybe it's tendencies to fall back into those rhythms. And so the mikvah is a baptism that says, I remove those things that I've attached, that sin has attached to me. The sin itself is removed, but the mikvah, the baptism, cleanses the person of the stain of sin. And so Jesus here, the Lamb of God, who is going to be the ultimate sacrificial lamb, is directly correlating the sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God coming to be baptized, participating, connecting the sacrifice, the removal of sin with the cleansing of the stain of sin through baptism. And this is something very common that they would understand in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish culture of that day. They go hand in hand. And there's a few things that are happening here when Jesus gets baptized. The first is that Jesus himself doesn't need to be baptized, but Jesus is a good commander-in-chief. He doesn't do anything, he, he doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't actually first do himself. And so he's demonstrating for us that baptism is something for us to be mindful of, aware of, and he's actually going to tell us to baptize later, which we won't get into right now. But he is setting the stage and establishing the pattern for those that follow after him in direct connection with the sacrifice that cleanses sin, baptism. And what happens when Jesus is baptized, he goes under the water and it says, as he came up out of the water, Holy Spirit descended upon him and remained on him like a dove. Now, Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, maybe you've heard, is one of the persons of God There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, or God the Holy Ghost. And this person of God descends upon the human Jesus, who is God the Son as a physical person. And the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus and remains upon Jesus. This sets the stage to understand. At baptism, in in, in the lives of those who follow Jesus' example, who say, I believe Jesus' way of doing things is the best way to do things, and I'll follow his example. In obedience, when we come up out of the water, it's the idea that Holy Spirit descends upon and remains on the one baptized as a response to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. So it, this is something that happens after Jesus' death and a resurrection, but Jesus is painting that picture, establishing it now. And it also is confirmation for John. So John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he sees Holy Spirit descend and remain upon Jesus like a dove, that's the sign that God promised me he would show me to confirm this is actually the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not just this thing that popped into my head. It's not just this idea that I had. It's not just something someone told me that I should believe. This is God confirming. He told me I would see the Spirit of God descend like a dove and land on the Lamb of God. This is how I know this is for sure the right guy. 
And as John is declaring this and saying it over, because it says he says it a couple days in a row, you guys, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah. That's the one God promised. And as he's saying this and pointing people towards Jesus, even his own students, the people who have been following and learning from John are like, oh, for real? That's the Lamb of God? All right, John, here's my two weeks notice. Also, I'm taking two weeks uh, unpaid vacation, so I'm out of here. And they head over to the Jesus camp and they start listening and following Jesus and they discover that this Jesus, this Messiah, he, he, he speaks with authority and he walks, you know, what's the... Um, uh, carry a walk lightly, but carry a big stick. I, never mind. I don't really get what that means. But the way that Jesus walks, there's something about the way he carries himself. And it's because the Spirit of God remains on him. The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and remains on him. So Jesus, the God, the Son, is fully aware that the very presence of God rests and remains upon him. And so every step he takes every word he says, he speaks and moves in such a way that is very aware of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, resting and remaining upon him. And this begins to draw people. They're very interested in the way he speaks, the way he moves, and the way he interacts with people. And we're going to actually see next week the very first miracle that the Bible records him doing as a way to demonstrate and, and prove that Jesus is who he says he is, to validate the message that he has, to prove it. And this is the way that people begin to follow him and, and very... Within a day, he has 12 followers, something unprecedented, right? Twitter, ka-chow, the OG Instagram, Jesus, 12 followers in one day. And he gathers around himself men who are fishermen, stinky, hardworking, rippling abs, fishermen. And we begin to see these three working in tandem that are going to change the world. A lamb, a dove, and fishermen. All found right here, the second half of the first chapter of John. Read it for yourself. I have been your host, The Dumb Christian. I love you guys. Next time. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us as we've wrapped up the first chapter of John. And I think it's going to be really cool that we discover um, John and Genesis. There's going to be a lot of like tandem things happening together as we walk through both books. But continue to join us. Share this with your friends and your family. Subscribe, hit the like, ring that bell, and a boxer somewhere will just start swinging. We'll catch you guys in the next one. I love you guys. Oh, oh, oh.